Well, this morning we're going to come back to consider the third chapter of the book of Romans again. We've been kind of snaking our way slowly through this book because um, there's a sense in which, in my own understanding of the book, uh, I think I'm coming to, for the first time, uh, have a sense of the context, the situation in the church at Rome that warranted Paul to sit down and put uh, uh, ink to quill and to put this on um, the parchment that he sent to um, uh, to the church at Rome, uh, that this is not different from any of the other letters of the New Testament. They're all occasional letters, that is, they're occasioned by situations and circumstances in the congregation itself. It's not a letter that is simply written to um, just set out, uh, like I said in previous studies, a manual for evangelism or a systematic theology or any such thing. It's written again to a local church in the light of their own uh, existential situation, the things that were going on, the situation in the life of this congregation. And part of that were divisions that were existing in the congregation that largely was a result of the reality that the, the new covenant is quite different than the old. That the new covenant comes to um, embrace the Gentiles as the people of God. Not just one nation, but uh, all the nations of the earth become children of Abraham uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course this brought some ethnic um, uh, Tensions that existed between uh, Jews and uh, Gentiles, uh, 14 and 15 particularly, give a sense of that with regard to keeping of days and dietary rules and regulations that some kept and some did not. And there was a tendency to judge one another along those lines. There's also the whole question of um, how we are to understand Israel because largely they did not embrace the gospel. They did not come to faith in Christ and there are perhaps Gentiles that thought that uh, that was a good reason to have a, an adversarial as- attitude towards Jewish people or to think lightly of them or to think lightly of them within the Christian congregation. So Paul, throughout the, throughout the letter, is looking to uphold the Jew with reference to the advantages that truly were theirs, but also to bring about the reality that the church is not just a Jewish enterprise any longer. And he's concerned to um, just underscore uh, the point by um, demonstrating that all are, are, are brought into um, uh, unity with one another uh, where there's no distinction both with respect to sin and with respect to righteousness. That there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. We're all under sin. And there's no difference between the way we're saved. We all come to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And though, on one hand, the gospel was given to the Jew first and then to the Greek, but also it's also true that in judgment it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that much privilege and advantage and um, does require um, great responsibilities. So uh, Paul just tends to give this wonderful balance in his instruction to the church, really to rip the rip the the, the foundation of any kind of racial pride away, any kind of um, boasting that one party would have over the other. Um, and again, we wonder if he's just talking about. Um, 
you know, manual for evangelism, why is he emphasizing things like boasting? Why is he saying it's excluded? Uh, why is he saying so many of the things that he says? He says on, uh, in the light of uh, these tensions that existed within the church at Rome. Um, back in chapter 15, there's a statement that comes sort of the end, the end of the portion where the matters of uh, keeping days and f- uh, ke- uh, not keeping days or uh, keeping dietary laws and not keeping dietary laws. Uh, this gives such a, a wonderful sense of the, how church life is to be conducted. He says in verse 2 of chapter 15, Would each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up? For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Willingly, Christ came to bear the reproaches that were due uh, to our sins. Uh, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then he gives this prayer in verse 5, based upon uh, that statement of verse 4. He says, now, may the God of endurance, the God of patience, the God of perseverance, the God who leads us along and doesn't give up on us until he fulfills his will and his purposes in us and through us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That's the great prairie praise, that they would live in such harmony with one another that would reflect something of the harmony with which God has dealt with us, the God who deals with us, endures much from us, who gives us his spirit, who dwells in our midst, who is concerned for our continuance in faith and perseverance, in union with himself, in participation of the blessings of God. We're to, we're to bear with each other. We're to persevere with one another. We're to be co-heirs with, 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 with um, one another and with Christ in the, in the inheritance that, that God has given. And um, we're to show that unity in the way we view one another, the way we relate to one another, and the way we serve with one another. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. I think the such harmony he's thinking about is what he's modeled in us and through us. That God has not cast us off. He's received us. We're not going to receive one another. We're going to cast off one another. He's come into harmony with us through the gospel. He's come to forgive us of our sins and to make us righteous in his sight through the gospel. He's joined us to himself and through his son. Um, and therefore we're to not receive one another and endure with one another and persevere with one another and engage in such harmony with one another that God has engaged with us. And this is a harmony again. It's in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We've been welcomed. God has welcomed us. God has shed abroad his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And we're going to deny love to one another. And we're going to deny grace to one another when we've been dealt with in such grace. That's the argument that he gives. And everything he tells us about the gospel, everything he tells us about how we're made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, has really that is his goal, to really say to us how we've been received when we deserved the exact opposite of what the grace of God gives us. And so how are we to be 
um, harsh with one another and dismissive of one another and refusing to receive one another and to love one another. Well, Paul's leveled us all. He's leveled us in sin. He's demonstrated through, back in chapter 3, let's turn back there. This is where we are now. I just wanted to look at chapter 15 to show you that's where he ends up. He ends up with those great concerns that we live together in harmony. That the church at Rome was not a harmonious group of people. That they were failing to live in love with one another and in unity with one another. And largely because of, well, other other reasons, but probably the big one was the Jew-Gentile problem. Uh, Again, you had the Jews made to leave Rome under the edict of of, of Caesar. And so a church that originally was started by Jews, the Jews had to leave. (laughs) And who took over? The Gentiles. And then they're welcome back, and now what do the Jews do? They made to leave, Gentiles are in control. Hey, friction's going to exist here. And so Paul is telling them, there's no distinction. We've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Um, and though Jews have advantages in one sense, Gentiles are received as well, and we're all made righteous by God on the common basis of, uh, of Christ. Christ is, that, is the one who brings us to God, and Christ is the one who unites us to one another. Uh, he concludes that section, and let me just say this. Uh, I, I told you there was about 10 Old Testament references that are there in verse uh, 10 to verse 18. And I'm not going to go through them with you all. You all have cross-reference Bibles. You all can go look them up. But I would just say that there are two things that are emphasized in those Old Testament quotations. And the first thing Paul seeks to emphasize is that uh, this whole matter of sin uh, is a matter in which both Jews and Gentiles are implicated. And so many of the passages seem to refer uh, to Jews, particularly their own sins as covenant breakers, breakers of the covenant they God made with them and their nation, and others are more universal in their scope of God looking down from heaven, seeing if there was any righteous person. They've all gone astray. None of them are profitable. They've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And there's a more universal perspective. So what Paul does is he marshals together texts that shows that Jews have sinned and other texts that say that Gentiles have sinned. So the first thing that those Old Testament passages do is just underscore the major uh, thesis Paul's giving. Jew and Gentile are all under sin. And if you have any doubt about it, look up at these Old Testament passages, some of which show you Jews have, have sinned and others passages will emphasize the fact that the Gentiles, idolaters, they too have, uh, they are under sin. And then the other thing that the passage seems to tell us that is that this sin has infected them in every part of their humanity. It's not just that all have sinned, but all have sinned in, in such a way that all of their nature has been implicated. So Jews and Gentiles have been implicated, and they've been implicated in the totality of their humanity. So... Uh, one of the ways in which scripture tends to do this is by just pointing out all the different parts of the body that are implicated with reference to sin. And, and so you look at these passages and he speaks about their throat being an open grave. And it's interesting, throat is a word that's very similar to the idea of the soul, um, you know, the breath, 
the spirit that comes out, you know, uh, in the throat or through the through the the, the breathing apparatus. Uh, the, uh, the spirit is breath, and soul is uh, oftentimes associated, at least verbally, uh, with the idea of the throat. And uh, their throat is an open grave. Their tongues they use to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. So you have throat, you have t- tongue, you have lips. Their mouth full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths, a ruin and misery. And then finally, there's no fear of God before their eyes. So look at all the bodily parts that he's brought into the picture of humanity in sin. Throat, tongue, lips, mouth, eyes, feet. So Paul has laid that out. Both Jew and Gentile are in sin, and they're in sin in the totality of their humanity. And that's interesting to look at various passages later on in which he shows what the grace of God and the gospel comes to do. Uh, the feet that are swift to bring the message of the gospel, um, or the mouth that is, uh, uh, with your mouth we confess Christ Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. Uh, the various parts of the body are now members that are no longer servants of sin, but become servants of righteousness. So uh, it's an interesting contrast. Now, one, it's interesting, one of the first actual messages I ever heard a Christian ever give from the Bible I was just a, a newly converted uh, person living in the city of New York, and uh, I attended this uh, Teen Challenge coffee house. And um, I think I've told you the story that the Lord actually saved me during this time when they had a devotional time. And some man began to pray about how good God was, and it convicted me of my own not being good. The sense of my own badness came to real surface in my mind. and. Um, anyway, uh, it wasn't too long after that, a fellow came and he gave a devotional at the same time, and it always just stuck in my mind, that he quoted this section in the book of Romans in chapter 3, with respect to their mouths being filled with curses and bitterness. And he showed how the, 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 the state of the mouth is a reflection of the state of the heart. The mouth is filled with curses and bitterness is because the heart is filled with curses and bitterness. Jesus draws that connection out of the out of the heart um, proceed all these things. Um, wicked words, it's out of the fullness of the heart that we speak evil words. And um, he opened that up very very convictingly, I thought, for me as a young believer, I was very much convicted by the way I spoke and the words I used and the bitterness and curses that sometimes were still there as a, a young believer. And then he began to show how God and his grace of the gospel comes and changes the things that we do with our tongues and with our mouth in particular. I remember him quoting the... Uh, the way we uh, confess Jesus as Lord, the way with our mouths we confess Jesus with, as Lord, the way we sing God's praises, the way we use our mouths now to bear testimony of the gospel and all the, the proper uses of our tongues. And um, that's one of the first messages I ever heard, and uh, I still remember it even to this day. It's a, it's a, it was a faithful teaching from God's word. So now, Paul concludes this um, Testimony, what we call a katina, our verses, 
That's verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. We see that in Scripture. You say, what are they doing? Well, it's, it's, it's called a katina, is what they're doing. They're giving a, a, a literary device called a katina, which lists a whole bunch of verses. Or sometimes in the, old, in the writings of the church fathers, it was called a testimonia. A testimonia. That here are the testimonies the Scripture gives. That of the mouths of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Well, here's like two or three witnesses. Here's like ten witnesses from the Old Testament bearing testimonia to the very same thing um, of the universality of sin and of the uh, way in which sin affects all of our humanity. Then Paul says in verse 19, we know what the law speaks. It speaks to those who are under the law. And, and that would probably be the Jews who formerly are under the law of God. Although Paul did mention the work of the law that's in the heart of uh, unbelievers. They know the difference between right and wrong and good and evil, showing that a work of the law uh, has been done in their hearts. But, but the point is that... Um, Every mouth should be stopped before God. Nobody can protest that we have some right to come into God's presence with acceptance and with favor uh, because of who and what we are and what, and, and what we've done. That uh, uh, the law convicts us of our sin. Uh, so that the whole world may be held accountable to God, will come under the judgment of God, will come under the scrutiny of God. No one can justify themselves. No one can say, well, look at my life. Look at how wonderful it is. Look at how uh, glorious my life is. Not in the light of, of God's law. Not in the light of the things God has revealed about himself. Um, in the light of God's law, we're all under condemnation. For verse 20, he says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Nobody could point to the law and say, here's the reason that I am just in my life before God because I've kept his law in its entirety. Um, the reality is, Paul says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul, of course, is going to open that up more in chapter 7 when he deals with the law in a specific way. A whole chapter given over to the law in chapter 7 of Romans. But um, he spoke about how once he was alive apart from the law. Uh, once he thought himself to be righteous with respect to the law. And that usually is the result of the fact you haven't paid attention. That you just have some notion about the law that you really haven't paid attention to actually what the law is saying. And you think, well, thou shalt not kill simply means don't get arrested for the crime of murder. If they can't slip the handcuffs on me and take me before the judge and charge me with capital murder, then I've not committed the offense of uh, thou shalt not kill. When I might have killed people's reputations left, right, and center through my gossip, I may have killed people time and again over in my heart. And, and of course, Jesus takes that commandment and says the roots of it or the seeds of it is, is, is in the heart. Anyone that's angry with his brother is guilty of the sin of murder. Because it's just a question of God's common grace. It's a question of restraints of law. It's a question of lots of things that keep us from breaking out with full malice upon other people to the full extent of what our heart might desire. But we might kill them over and over again in our mind and in our hearts. And um, the point is that we just don't understand what the law requires. We don't understand what the law forbids. We don't understand that we are culpable before God's law. When we recognize that God's law is uh, not just governing external conduct, that as Paul says again back in Romans chapter 7, that the law is holy, just, and good, and uh, the law is something that is spiritual. He says the law is spiritual. I'm carnal, sold under sin. 
The law is spiritual. In other words, the law goes further than just the externals. And of course, it's the, you know, you think of it from both ends of the Ten Commandments. If you take Commandments 1 to 10, you can come to the beginning where the command is to have no other gods before him. And that's something that, uh, you know, we might not actually bow down before an idol externally, but uh, if we prefer ourselves to God and we're narcissists, well, we're guilty of the committing of that offense. If we're materialists and we're lovers of things rather than lovers of God, then we are the idolaters. And that's something that's inward. It's within the mind and in the heart. The things we love. Whatever we love more than God is an idol to us. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and he uses, I think, those three expressions. Lovers of things, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure. And it's all in contrast to the love of God. And that's, just, that's idolatry. And so we've broken that commandment because this commandment requires that God be set apart in our, his being is holy and we're to reverence him with all our heart, mind, soul and strength it's not just a question of the externals of religious practice it's a question of sanctifying him in our hearts having him set apart in our hearts and the tenth commandment is a commandment that says you shall not covet well what do you covet with? nice, covet with your eyes yeah, when you when you're greedy and envious of others but it's a matter that's in the heart it's nothing necessarily external and Paul said when the commandment thou shalt not covet came he says sin revived and I died as soon as I understood that this whole matter of law is more than just external behavior that it has to do with the mind, the heart, the inner life you shall not covet he says man oh man I looked in my heart and what did I see? All manner of covetousness. All manner of covetousness. And with Paul, it's an interesting thing. The the area where covetousness probably affected him most was not that he wanted to be king or not that he wanted a million dollars and fame and fortune, although in a sense he did, because it was his progress in the Jews' religion. Above all of his countrymen, above all of his contemporaries, he was the up-and-coming leader as a rabbi. And he loved it. It was what he wanted. That was what he was after. That's what he dedicated his life to. The progress he made in the Jews' religion. And when he saw that, what did that lead him to? It led him on the road to Damascus to encounter what the, um, um, the voice of God. I was trying to give you the Hebrew of that, but I couldn't remember it all. But there's actually the voice of God. We encounter that in the Old Testament a, a, a lot. God speaking. God spoke from Mount Sinai. God spoke uh, to uh, Abraham. God spoke, uh, to, his voice was heard. Well, the voice of God was heard on the road to Damascus. And Paul knew it, he knew that voice. He was well instructed as a rabbi. That could be nothing but the voice of God. The only question is, who are you, Lord? That's the question. Here's this up-and-coming rabbi, big mover and shaker in Israel. He's the leading light, teacher of others. And where to lead him? I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Who's Israel's Lord? 
the very one Paul was in the process of persecuting his followers, filled with enmity, filled with bitterness, filled with loathing, filled with hatred. He would extinguish the very name of Christ from the earth. That's where his religious zeal got him. Regarding zeal, he says in the Philippian letter, persecuting the church, persecuting the church, persecuting the people of God. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Soon revived and I died. I became as a dead man. I recognized the reality. But uh, I'm arguing here in Romans that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth would be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. And if anyone can evaluate ourselves before the law of God and think we're righteous, again, you just haven't paid attention to what the law requires. You just haven't paid attention to what God's law mandates of us. And so by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sights. And through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, the important thing to realize here is that Paul has introduced a word that's going to become an important word in this letter, an important word in other letters that Paul has written, particularly the Galatian letter. And that's the language of justification, will be justified. Now, it's, it's kin to the idea of righteousness. In fact, it's a common family of words that are, are being used. Um, but here is the idea of um, being justified in his sight in terms of coming before God the judge. Here, the, uh, the language of justification is language that's legal in its nature. It has to do with the law court. It has to do with God the judge. It has to do with what the law requires and whether we've kept the law or not kept the law. Again, when the cops come and they put the handcuffs on you and bring you before the judge, the only thing that matters there is, did you break the law? Are you a law keeper or are you a law breaker? Now, I think it needs to be said, I've said it before, but it needs to be said again, the justification, though it is a very prominent theme in Romans 3, 4, and 5, is not the only picture of our relationship to God the scripture gives to us it's the one we tend to emphasize because at the time of the reformation uh, Luther saw the book of Romans as really the key text to combat the works righteousness of the Roman Catholic Church and in so doing he was perfectly correct in doing that that the viewing ourselves as being righteous or, uh, or, or not justified until a certain point down the road when we can become good enough, we become pure enough, we can become holy enough to be justified is just simply not what Scripture teaches. The justification is a change not in our inner moral um, life, it's a change in our relationship to God. It's an alteration of our stand, standing before the judge. It's what the judge says to about us when we come into the law court. Now, again, if the judge is just going by the law, then we're all guilty. But you see, somebody has also come before God's law. And that's Jesus, who came before God the judge, in a sense, bearing away our sin taking away our our guilt, removing um, the sins that would ordinarily call for our condemnation. And instead, because of Jesus, because of his work for us, because of his redemption, in verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption 
that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Those words, redemption, that word propitiation, um, are words that speak of God's dealing with our sins, passing over sins aforetime and now um, dealing with sins fully in his Son, so that all the sins that were passed over of Old Testament saints uh, do not count against them. All the sins of New Testament saints do not count against them. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus is what um, the end of verse 26 says. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is a legal term. But again, it's not the only way to see our relationship to God. It's not only that we're sinners in the law court coming before the judge with the question of how do we stand before his law. We're also sons and daughters created to be the sons and daughters of God. Uh, we are his offspring, Paul says to the, um, to the group in, in Athens. But unfortunately, because sin entered into the Garden of Eden, Adam, the son of God, got cast out of his inheritance. Got cast out of the garden, got uh, cast out from the presence of God. And there's a sense in which the son was told, pack your bags and leave. Some of us have been in that situation. <laughs> You ever go home as a kid and find your bags are packed? <laughs> and your parents said, out of the house, you leave. Well, it happened to me, and I got up and I left. Much to my, um, you know, look back at it now and say, what a stupid kid I was. Well, I was a stupid kid. But uh, you can get cast out of your house. You can become disowned. You can become disinherited, which is exactly what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He was disowned and disinherited as a son. He was sent packing. And he went out from the presence of God. One who formerly had dwelt in the presence of God now is now out of the presence of God. And I tell you, it's not the language of law court that meets us in Genesis chapter 1. It's the language of the family. It's the language of the father who and his created son and daughter made in his image, made in his likeness made to reflect that image and likeness who get cast off and so one of the things scripture tells us with reference to the work of Jesus it not only is a work that justifies it's a work that restores us to the family it's a work of uh, as many as received him to them he gave the authority to become what? children of God, even to those that believe on his name, who are born not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. There's the power of a new birth that engrafts us back into the family, that brings us out of our distance into nearness to God. And that too is a biblical model. There's also the picture where not only regenerate sons brought back, we're adopted children. There's a legal basis of it all. I mean, there's many, many pictures that God gives of our relationship to him. We're sons and daughters in a family. We're, we're, we're accused uh, sinners in a law court. Um, we're, we're rebels to a king. Um, we're sheep that wander. Um, you know, we could come up with, we did this this morning, just opened it up. How many images can you think of with reference to our relationship to God? And, and there are many, many, many of them. And they all need to come into play in our understanding of who and what we are. 
as the people of God. There's all the image that comes around the tabernacle and the temple and worship and um, um, how God restores us to be able not to draw back but to draw near to a throne of grace, to find grace and mercy to help us in time of need. And all that language is, is language of the priesthood. It's language of the way God uh, reconciles us to himself through the atonement that's priestly work of Christ and so we have all this stuff that comes to us in scripture uh, that helps us to see the wonders of Christian salvation from a, from a, um, a variety of, uh, of, view, of points of view uh, there's a multiplicity of, of fullness that comes into the salvation we have in Jesus but this matter of justification is not unimportant. It's of great importance. And it's of great importance particularly in this letter where Paul is addressing the ways in which these two parties, the Jews and the Gentiles, viewed one another uh, with some measure of suspicion. Um, and uh, Paul has leveled them all in sin. And now he wants to level them all in grace. And he says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested. Here's the great key text of Romans chapter 3, this whole question of justification. How the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from anything having to do with law keeping, whether that law keeping has to do with the laws of circumcision, the laws of rituals, the laws that are moral in nature, the laws that are civil in nature. The law does not enter into it. Duty and requirement does not enter into it. Human achievement does not enter into it. It's apart from the law. And as people debate about this, well, is it the circumcision law? Is it this law, that law, the next law? Well, the reality is it's any law. Uh, Paul really cinches that for me in the book of Galatians in chapter 2 when when he raises the the whole question of law in in this way. Um, Look at chapter 2. And let's begin in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Um, He speaks about being crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything hinges, not upon our, our, our doing, but, but Jesus' doing. And then there's that word, and uh, I thought it was in chapter 2, but obviously it's not, where he says that if a law can be given that would make us righteous, then righteousness would come through the law. Is um, anybody I turn to that thought? I thought it was in chapter 2, but evidently it's not. Perhaps in chapter 3 it would be. But again, I'm not looking at it. But anyway, that's clearly a statement Paul does make. If a law could be given, hypothetically, that could make us righteous, why, why would Jesus come and die? Why, why would it be needful for the Son of God to come and to um, die upon a cross for our forgiveness if we could con- con- construct God could construct a law that says do this and live but the law, the law that, that says do this and live can never make us righteous because we simply cannot do um, what will ever 
cancel out our guilt, can ever make us right with God. But what we can't do, God has done. God has done in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 21. 321? Yeah, it's right there. It is right there. Yeah. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Again, that's just kind of a similar argument to Romans chapter 2. I mean, Galatians is a little bit different than Romans, but at least in terms of the essential core matter of how we are saved and how we are made right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what brings us to be right with God. That's what brings us to be justified. Not law, but faith in Christ. And it's not even really faith in Christ in the sense that faith becomes some new law. You know, that was taught by a group of people in the church in earlier days, maybe still taught today. Well, God saw we couldn't keep the law, so he would just say, well, now I'll give you a new law. And the new law is simply this, believe, and you'll be saved. And that becomes new law. Well, if that was true, then that makes my faith my Savior. That makes what I've done in believing my Savior. When, when really what we're seeing in Scripture is that faith is an instrument that brings us Jesus, or brings us really into Jesus, brings us into union with Jesus, brings us into participation of, Je- of Jesus and his blessings. So faith is like nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Nothing I could possibly do can ever make me right with God, but Christ can make me right with God, and if I am in Him, then I'm right with God. He is is my Savior, not my faith. Faith is an instrument, but it's not a a power that, that, that saves us. Are you all with me on this here? I mean, this is stuff that's not new to, to most of you, but just I'd, I think it's important when we look at these things to kind of fine-tune it a bit in our thinking um, because it's so easy to just not think clearly on some of these matters. And I think even with respect to the whole question of justification, um, you know, there are, there are people, and uh, maybe you've seen them online or maybe you've met them in the flesh, who have simply thought, well, if we don't have the matter of justification by faith clearly understood in our intellect, we can't be justified by faith. In other words, they think that uh, justification by faith is itself salvation. Or right views of justification by faith. It's the theology of justification by faith that somehow is saving by the time, I met a lot of people that have right views of justification by faith that I don't think are Christians. They understand justification by faith very, very clearly. They can define it, articulate it, teach it in Sunday school, but yet they themselves give no evidence of faith. They have evidence of knowledge, but not faith. Paul says knowledge puffs up, love builds up. There's not the love of the gospel. There's not the love of Christ within their hearts and lives, so there is plenty of knowledge. But there are people who believe in Jesus, they may not have a clue. I mean, 
think of it. Maybe you are like me. When I came to faith in Christ and someone would walk down the street and say, I hear you're a Christian. I understand Christians, at least you Protestant guys, you, were, you make much about justification by faith. Can you tell me what that's all about? <laughs> I said, never. I, 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 new to me. <laughs> Jesus I know, but justification by faith, I'm not really sure I do. Um, I really couldn't define it for you. But yet, you see, it's not those who understand all the ins and outs of justification by faith. It's those who believe. It's those who believe. It's belief that brings us into Christ. And you see, it's, it's Christ who is the great um, He's the great reservoir. Oh, I don't remember how to spell reservoir. I think that's right. He, he's the great source of the blessings. If any man thirst, let him come to me. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And I don't think that's talking about our bellies. It's talking about out of Christ there flows those rivers of living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, you would have asked and I would have given you living water. All the blessings of God are, are, are in Christ. All the promises of God are in Christ. And you see, it says, we come to be in Christ, then the blessings are ours. And part of the blessings of... So, so Christ is, is, is the Savior. And matters like justification and sanctification and adoption and on and on and on and on. They're all the blessings that are found in Christ. So these are the blessings of salvation. But they're not, they're not sa- sa- saviors. The blessings of salvation is not what saves us. Jesus saves us, and in saving us, he brings us the blessings of salvation. And we have those blessings of salvation, whether we understand them or not. They're still ours. Before you had a clue as to what sanctification meant, you were being sanctified. Before you have a clue as to whether or not you're going to persevere to the end, God's preserving you, and God's keeping you. So it's not a question of what, what, what side of the issue have you come at on in, order to underst- in your understanding of the doctrines. I mean, we want to be on the right side of understanding the doctrines, don't we? <laughs> Clearly we do. And we labor to be on the right side of understanding the doctrines. But it doesn't mean, oh, Eureka, I found the mystery of what sanctification is all about. And so that means that through them, my understanding, I got saved. No. Through Jesus, you got saved. You came to Jesus, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. We receive the mercies of God in Christ. He's the Savior. Faith is the means. It's the means that brings us into Jesus and brings us all the blessings of salvation that are bound up in Him. So, you know... Luther said that justification is the article of the standing and falling or the falling church. And um, I understand why he said that. And I'd like to believe it in the way that he said it, but I, I really have a problem with thinking that correct notions of justification 
um, is the sign of a church being a true church. Because where was the church before the 16th century? When the large, large numbers of Christendom didn't understand justification as Luther did. I mean, Augustine, who didn't really, he wasn't very good at Greek, if he knew Greek at all, he thought that justification meant infused righteousness. That um, it wasn't a question of something that is just upon faith you're justified, but something that is more of a, a process sort of thing. He didn't have it right. Um, most of the medieval church didn't have it right. Most, lots of the patristic church, I mean, a lot of it did, did get it right. I mean, you, but then you find ambiguity. You find some quotes, you say, hey, yay, they got it right. And then you read the next few words and you say, oh, did they really? Not quite sure. In other words, the precision of the doctrine is something that really came to the light at the Reformation. And, and blessed be God, it came to light in the Reformation. But that didn't, doesn't mean a church didn't exist prior. And Luther knew that. Luther understood the church existed prior to... Um, but we take that statement and we think we, we, we make more of it than it should be. That a church can't exist unless we have correct notions of justification. Um, again, I think a lot of the things that was, came out of the Reformation... We're, we're, we're fine statements and we should consider them but then we have to analyze it is it biblical is it biblical to say that uh, the right notions of justification determine the matter or even if we rightly administer the sacraments or uh, uh, preach the gospel in the way we think the gospel should be preached uh, what's the other thing uh, and we, we do discipline I think that's the reformers said that those are the three things the right doctrine right administration of the sacraments and discipline those three things those are the marks of the church well that's that's a great statement and it's something we should all aspire to have right doctrine we should all aspire to discipline correctly we all should aspire to administer the sacraments properly but is that really the question of whether a church exists and I really think the issue is simply this does faith in Christ exist as marred and defective as it might be, this faith in Christ exists. You know, as being someone who's made a study of different groups through the years, and uh, you know, always wanting to have something of a hypercritical eye. I mean, I think of the the Bruderhof that's over here in in uh, in Walden. Um, you go back in the history of the Bruderhof in Germany, and pretty works righteousness sort of people. And then you meet some of these people in the Bruderhof today, and though they dress strangely, they live communally, and they do all this stuff, the reality does seem to be that they don't know the Lord. The reality does seem to be that these are spirit-filled Christians. And um, again, you just spend a little time with them, and that becomes sort of apparent. Whatever the deficiencies are, as we say, the root of the matter is in them. You know what I'm talking about, the Bruderhof? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so to me, biblically speaking, a church exists where two or three believers in Jesus are gathered together in his name in the power of the Holy Spirit. Their Christ is present, the Spirit is present, and a church exists. In the midst of all of the deficiencies and all of the weaknesses, you know, you look at us and say, look how deficient you are in this area, that area, that area. 
So I wouldn't want to be judged on the basis of my performance as to whether I'm a Christian or, uh, 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 I mean, by the stringency of the law, certainly, because it's just going to convict me as a sinner, or as a church, because that just means we're a bunch of sinners who have a bunch of deficiencies that get magnified by the amount of people that are there. And... uh, you know, I don't even think that our formal understanding of things, which is a work in progress, we're all growing in our understanding. We're all growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the most you could say is that, well, it's a church that is, is, is an error. It points A, B, and C. Uh, but I could say of our church, we're a church in error. Because we don't know the truth of the gospel in 100% of the things that the word of God teaches you know, there's probably 10%, 20%, 30 I don't know how much it is. I don't know all truth. And, but certain percentage, we're wrong. We're wrong. Problem is, I don't know which, which parts. <laughs> if I knew which parts, I'd correct it. Believe me, I would. But I don't know which parts are wrong. We do our best. We do our best to to study, to understand, to receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save our souls, to teach it in the light that God has given us. But as someone who's walked as a Christian for, you know, some, I guess, 50 years now, what I know now is certainly different than what I knew as a young believer. But as a young believer, I love Christ. As a young believer, I sought to follow Christ. Haltingly and, and and all you know, ignorantly, uh, I and mean, we're all in the same boat. So, you know, thankfully, we're not justified on the basis of our performance as churches or as individuals. Jesus is our Savior. We're clothed in His righteousness. He brings us forgiveness of sins. We're justified by grace as a gift. It's free. Wonderful verse of verse 24. Justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But I think it's also important to say that what Paul is doing here in this letter, and I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again, is again he's addressing the church. He's addressing how the church sees itself. And as he's telling the church, all of you guys there in Rome, you've all sinned. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody has an edge above anybody else. God levels us all when none of us have anything to boast in. He then says to the same group of people, and you are being justified by faith. And you are justified by faith. It's the same group of people being involved. And are justified. ESV has it right. And so, verse 23 is not a statement about everybody everywhere. It's a statement about everybody in the church that Paul's addressing. It's true of everybody everywhere, but it's not something Paul's asserting. He's saying, all you people there, you're all under sin, you're all guilty before God. Every mouth will be stopped. No Christian can raise up his head and say, yeah, but there's a difference in me. There's a distinction in me. And then he says, and you are being, and you are, you are justified. Same group of people. I know that's a, that's a, that's a grammatical issue, but it's there in the text. He's addressing the church. You know, again, we can reason from what he says to the church, and we can generalize it to all people everywhere. But he's saying, you at Rome, pay special note of this, as you view one another, see you're all in the same boat.
You're all in the same boat as sinners. You're all in the same boat in Christ, being justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's not a single reason God brought you into the fellowship of His Son because of something in you. (laughs) Everything in Him. It's His grace. He justifies us freely, without a cause. That word can be translated without a cause. In fact, it's used in the Gospels in chapter 16 of John where Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. Same word. Same word. They hated me without a cause. So we're justified without a cause. At least no cause in us. Whatever cause there is in God is known to God. But God brought us into the fellowship of His Son. We who all sin fall short of the glory of God and we're all justified by His grace as a gift. And then these important words that we don't have time to go into this morning, redemption, propitiation, that God willing will focus in on those next Lord's Day. Well, I don't have time for questions, so feel free to write them down and bring them up next week or address them to me afterwards. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful we can meet this morning in this way and talk about the things of your word. And Lord, we need to be people subject to scripture not just our own thoughts not just our own even ideas about scripture so give us grace to ever be coming back to your word with open hearts and to receive your truth and to follow its teaching and wherever it would lead us we're thankful father for the greatness of your love to your people that you have brought us together as a people where none of us have a reason to boast over others, that we're somehow in a superior position morally or spiritually or educationally or any other way. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of your glory. And we're all justified on the same basis. Thank you that you brought us into Jesus. And in Jesus, there is the fullness of grace. There is the fullness of truth. There is the fullness of the provisions of the gospel and the blessings of so great a salvation. So receive our thanksgiving. Bless us as we greet one another this morning. Bless us as we enter into the morning hour of worship. Give us hearts to sing your praises. Give us ears to hear your word as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.